we'll put it some scriptures from First Samuel, and um, I'm going to be mainly in well, almost completely in First Kings. It's um, you know, when I read in, in books like First Kings, you know, I guess everything in Scripture, you, you can be reminded of what's going on in your own time period, and it just seems like when you read books like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you see sort of a a, a creeping apostasy that gets greater and greater all the time and it's like the people that don't follow hard after the Lord become more and more enticed and sucked into the surrounding apostasy the surrounding uh, laissez-faire and gods of the day and that sort of thing so it's not a matter of so much actively following it sometimes as it is of not being passionate about the truth and if you're not passionate about the truth then you get more and more enticed by the lies and You know, even though we know that you gain a, a broader and a greater understanding from the Bible as a whole, when you understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Christians mainly don't give the Old Testament a whole lot of attention. The New Testament feels pretty strange to us sometimes. But the Old Testament, hundreds of years earlier than the New Testament, feels really strange. The Old Testament culture doesn't seem anywhere near as relevant as the New Testament culture. And many of the customs in the Old Testament just totally baffle us. And then apart from the culture you've got the law codes I mean what in the world do we care about if your neighbor's ox falls into a, a ditch what we're supposed to do about it and many such laws like that that are strange to us and then we've got the words of the Lord coming against countries that we've never even heard of we have no idea who they are they don't even exist anymore, at least not with the same names that are given to us in the scripture. And then we've got poetry that doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> and we're trying to figure that out. It's almost like we hear somebody whispering in our ears that, you know, this wasn't written for you. It was for different people at a different time this is going to be hard to understand or hard to hear and even harder to understand. You know, it's not that we don't like 
the stories it's that we're not quite sure what we're supposed to get out of these stories that's relevant to us today the bottom line is that many Christians are uncomfortable with the Old Testament that part of the Bible that makes up almost three-fourths of the total and we know that that's unfortunate because the Old Testament's the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord never changes it's the Bible obviously that Jesus and the disciples used the Old Testament scriptures and it was written almost exclusively by Jews who were thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament, the godly ones. And they quoted it and appealed to it continually. And with that pretty much as a preamble, I'd like to look at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Some of Elijah, Elisha later, in the books of First and Second Kings, and how it's relevant to us today. Their stories really cover a period of about 75 years. And they were active during the time of the Northern Kingdom, or in the Northern Kingdom. And much of what we read about these two prophets took place during the reign of the wicked king Ahab, and if possible, his even more wicked queen Jezebel. You know, Israel had lived in a constant state of danger from the Canaanite religious influence ever since they conquered the land, ever since the time they went into it. Before they went into the land, the Canaanite shrines occupied high places all over the countryside. They were prolific. They were prolific. Everywhere you turn, that's where they were. And they continually threatened Israel while they were in the promised land. In spite of the warnings from the law and the prophets about the effect that it was going to have on them. You know, shortly after the breakup of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon, Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom, of course, being Judah. And what Jeroboam did was rebuilt the Canaanite shrines that had been destroyed to a certain extent before he became king. And he introduced the worship of Yahweh under the symbol of a bull. Now, briefly, what you already know, I'm sure is when the kingdoms broke up, the southern king, Rehoboam, was Solomon's son. And Jeroboam became, there was a rebellion. Jeroboam took many of the tribes, all of them except Judah and Benjamin, and went to the northern kingdom. And he became king there. And he was afraid, of course, that he was going to lose the people because the temple was in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And he didn't want the people from the northern kingdom going to the southern kingdom of Judah to worship because he knew that if they did, he'd lose their hold on them and they would eventually abandon him and turn against his kingship. So what he did 
the established shrines in the north. So people could worship there rather than go back to Jerusalem. And as that is sort of a, a background, in 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, verses 25 through 33, says this. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and put the other in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. After Jeroboam, there were a number of kings in the northern kingdom. And most of them really didn't last very long. But they were all wicked. And then along came Omri, who was more wicked than the ones before him. And Omri wanted to build a political alliance for trade purposes, but also he wanted an alliance to protect him against the threats from the north. And so the best way to do this was the time-honored method of marriage between a son and a daughter of one kingdom to the other. So what Omri did was exactly that. He arranged for his son Ahab to marry the daughter of the king of Tyre, Jezebel. And when Jezebel arrived in Jerusalem, she wasn't content to marry her gods, excuse me, to worship her gods in private. She wanted to remove the worship of the Lord completely from the kingdom of Israel and to institute worship of her gods. So when she arrived in Jerusalem, she brought with her 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And Asherah was the queen mother god. 
And when you see in Scripture, they're talking about building the Asherah. They're talking about a wooden symbol to this female deity. So here we've got Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, coming in and bringing the worship of Baal with her and all their prophets. You know, Baal was worshipped many, many times and in many places in the ancient Near East. And primarily was a god of fertility and a god of the weather. He was the storm god. He was called the rider of the clouds. And he was often shown with a lightning bolt in his hand, and thunder was identified as his voice. He was the one that brought rain. He's the one that caused the land to be fertile, to grow crops. And since the life in Israel was tied to the fruitfulness of the land, it's not hard to see why people were enticed to worship Baal. No agriculture, no crops, they starved. And Baal is the Canaanite god of fertility for the crops. This is what Hosea the prophet describes. This is how he describes the impact of Baalism in Israel. He likened Israel to an adulterous wife and he said, he said, I will go after my lovers who give me food, who give me my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So this is why Israel was so eager in some cases to go after Baal. And when we understand a bit about Baal and Baal worship that was sweeping the land of Israel in the 9th century B.C., it helps to bring the Elijah and Elisha stories into focus. It gives us a sharper understanding of what was going on at the time. And again and again, these prophets challenged Baal. And they challenged him in the areas that he was thought to control. The weather and the crops. The rain. Over and over. So what happens is that the Lord demonstrates to his prophets that he was the giver of life. He is the giver of rain. He is the one that causes the crops to grow. And that Baal is nothing. And it also helps to remember that the author of the book of Kings is anonymous. The, the, the consensus is that he lived during many years later, hundreds of years later, when the southern kingdom was in exile in Babylon. And so he's writing to the exiles in Babylon to give them an understanding that the gods in Babylon are nothing. And for them to understand this, he's giving them examples of hundreds of years earlier when the same thing was happening in the northern kingdom. That Baal was nothing, and that the gods of Babylon were nothing too. So they're important reminders, these stories in Kings, that Israel had encountered foreign gods in the past, 
and that in spite of appearances, foreign gods were delusion. They were powerless. They weren't real during the times of Elijah and Elisha, and they're not real during the time of the Babylonian exile either. Worshiping false gods brought absolute disaster upon Israel, the Israelite kings, and absolute disaster was going to fall on Babylon too. In 1 Kings 17, right coffee break right here. First Kings seventeen, one through six. <clears throat> Not Elijah, the, the Tishbite, who was one of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, "As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word." The word of the Lord came to him, saying. Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he would drink from the brook. Elijah appears in scripture out of the clear blue. Very abruptly. No information is given about his past life, about his family, his tribe. Even the place of his birth, Tishbit, they're not really sure where that was. He had no pedigree. He was not part of any kind of support group that we know of. And he lived in an out-of-the-way place in Israel, pretty isolated. All Elijah needed is the same thing that we need today. He needed to believe that the Lord, the God of Israel, lives and that we were going to serve, to serve him rather than Baal. That's what he believed. And this is why God used him. You know, many years before, God had set before Israel the ways of life and death during the days of Moses. Blessing and cursing, obedience and disobedience. Moses reminded Israel that God's law were not just idle words for you, they are your life. Prosperity meant full barns. It meant beautiful crops abundant livestock. That's what came from following God's commands. Disobedience brought crop failure. It brought drought. Deuteronomy 28 said, The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. God cannot lie and still be God. Ahab was more wicked than all the kings that had preceded him, 
And God kept his word about what he had said before. And he sent Elijah to announce a drought around the plain of Jezreel. In the plain of Jezreel, every morning dew would fall so heavily that even if it didn't rain, there was enough dew that crops would grow. This is the same area that Gideon had a, had a fleece, where one day the fleece was wet, the next day the fleece was dry. And this was an area that the dew was constantly heavy during the, the fall season. And this helps us to understand why Elijah announced that God would withhold not only the rain, but the dew as well. There's really no way that the challenge could be any clearer to the worshipers of Baal. To the Canaanites, again, Baal was the god of the storm. He brought the rain. He withheld the rain. He was the source of water. He was the source of food. So God sent lessons to teach Israel that he controlled the weather and fertility of the land as well. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal went through a cycle. He went through a cycle where he was alive for six months, he got defeated, he was dead for six months, there was a battle, he was raised from the dead for another six months, and when he came back, the sign that he was back was that the rains came and the ground became fertile again. Where the ground and the, and the had been barren and dry, now here come the fall rain and the crops started growing. That means Baal is alive again. So in response to this understanding, this mythology, Elijah, when he introduces the drought, he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. So the challenge is unmistakable. The Lord lives, not Baal. The Lord controls controls the weather, not Baal. The The Lord is everything. Baal is nothing. Elijah is an example of what Israel was supposed to be. Serving the Lord alone. So God provides the blessing to the prophet that would have gone to Israel. And just like God provides Israel with food and drink in the wilderness under Moses, now he provides food and drink during the time of drought for faithful Elijah. When Elijah was at the brook, the crops of Israel are failing. People are starving. They're dying of thirst. The wells were running dry. People suffered for quite a while. God's going to chasten his people, but as always, he's not going to abandon his people. Elijah appeared suddenly, and that revealed God. But his disappearance revealed God too. 
We don't really know where the location of the book Cherith is. And we really don't know exactly how long Elijah was there. But it was at least long enough for the drought to become so severe that the people were suffering greatly. God commanded Elijah to hide. Mount Israel was not only suffering from a lack of food and water, but they were suffering for a lot from a lack of the word of God. So he hides, and the word of God hides as well. And then continuing on in the 17th chapter, beginning in verse 7, it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the Lord, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, to go, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And she called, and he called to her and said, Please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of your flour, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. You know, God could have kept the brook running forever. But the brook dried up and God tells Elijah to leave. So why didn't he just keep the brook running and let Elijah stay there? Well, because he wanted the prophet to move. But why did he want him to move to Zarephath? That particular city, Zarephath, was located on the Mediterranean coast between the two great cities of Phoenicia, Tyre, and Sidon. And by sending the prophet there, God was teaching the people that his power was not restricted to Israel. You know, the current crisis in Israel was very severe, but it didn't just stop at the borders of Israel. It extended to the whole area there, drought and famine. And remember the Phoenician god of Baal 
was the God of fertility, the God of rain. He's the one that provided these things. And now the drought and famine in Israel is also in Phoenicia. And that's the homeland of Baal. And if Baal is impotent in his own homeland, why in the world should the people of Israel want to worship Baal? Remember, Kings, again, was written years later by someone in the exile in Babylon. God ruled in Elijah's day. He rules while they're in Babylon. The gods of all the other kingdoms are idols. They have no power. Phoenicia was a great sea power, but she couldn't feed herself. There are many scriptures where it talks about Phoenicia getting food from Israel during various parts of their existence, how she was often dependent on Israel for food. So how completely absurd is it that you would worship a God that can't even provide food for their own people within idols are always a delusion they never satisfy but they always bring emptiness always reminds me of that scripture from Jeremiah 2.5 where it reads thus says the Lord what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went from me, that they went far from me, and followed after emptiness and became empty? The Lord never meant that he himself would be the exclusive possession of Israel. From the very beginning, he told Abraham, that his descendants would bring a divine blessing to all the nations of the earth. The idea of missions in the Old Testament is that the nations would be drawn to Israel's God by observing the people of Israel. Israel was supposed to be a light in a dark world. But when Baal worship threatened to become the, the religion of the northern kingdom, there's no way that Israel could accomplish their mission. At that particular point in time, they became a little different than all the nations around them. But God is never frustrated. So he sends his prophet to a widow, widow from Tyre and showed through Elijah that his grace would spread through all the nations. It's always been God's command to love your enemies. You know, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul in Romans says, if your enemy hungers, feed him. And if he thirsts, give him drink. And Leviticus 19 says, you, know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then Jesus uses a parable of the Good Samaritan to tell us who our neighbor is. But this really wasn't a popular concept in Israel. And it's not that popular today either. When Jesus was in Galilee and Nazareth in his hometown, he went to the temple and he taught. And they didn't like listening to somebody because they said, we know who your father and your mother are. We're very familiar with it. And then Jesus said in Luke 4, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. The response was predictable. Israel had always killed her prophets. And now God was about to break down the barrier between Gentiles and Jews. God wanted the faith of the widow that Elijah visited to characterize Israel. But where he found it was in a Gentile woman. And God showed mercy to this widow and her son. People that were poor and powerless and Gentiles. And as he so often does, God chose the weak and the lowly in the eyes of the world to receive his favor. The rich and powerful so often think that they can manage very well but not by themselves. They don't need God. Imagine the widow's perspective. How would we respond if the prophet showed up and said, give me some water and there's a severe drought in the land. People are dying of thirst. And then he says, oh yeah, let me have some bread also. And she's preparing her last meal for herself and her son before they die. You know, it must have been pretty hard for her to believe God. God's promise. But because she did, she was preserved during the drought all the years, the three and a half years and how often do God's promises look pretty foolish to us? They seem to require, not seem, they require faith. And even if they seem foolish, they never fail. You know, later on we're going to look at the classic battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 
at the conclusion of that battle that he has later on with the prophets of Baal, Elijah says, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And that's what's going to happen again to all the prophets of Baal and all the people that follow after the prophets of Baal and their idols, all those that serve them. And the reason it's going to happen is because God's word never changes. Let's pray. Lord, it's just a matter of looking a little more closely at so much of the scripture to see that it's always relevant, that there's always a purpose, that it's always eternal. It's not just for the people that happened to at the time, it's for people of all times. And your word always shows your faithfulness. It always shows your love, your care, your discipline. And it always shows how you love your people and judgment falls on those that don't love you. And I just pray, Father, that you would touch our hearts and cause this to be a fresh word and a fresh taste, fresh taste in our mouth for you, that we might love and honor you all the days of our lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen.